0: In the heat of the night, seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow. Yeah, in the heat of.
1: Well, that was the opening music to In the Heat of the Night, released in 1967, and starring Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger, Warren Oates, Lee Grant, Larry Gates, and several other people that round out the cast. Um, And it was released by, or it was produced by the Marish uh, Corporation and released through United Artists. And you, you had just mentioned that that was a coming trend of the way films were going to be made in the future.
0: I think so. I think we've seen that play out in a lot of films now where there is a production company and then the, distribu- the distribution is done by someone else. Every combination. Yeah.
1: And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the Internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon where you can find us, just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. Uh, It's also our first in a series of movies that we're going to be covering that star black actors or black production uh, crews. We're excited to be talking about this movie. It's a very intense movie (laughs) and also a very well-regarded and highly awarded movie as well. It won several Academy Awards, so... This is Matt Johnson coming to you from what feels like really dark North Bend. I think we only have like eight hours of sunshine today. Oh, so. dreary. That's about what <laughs> yeah. we have. Yeah.
0: And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles welcoming you all back to uh, Classic Movie Reviews. And In the Heat of the Night, which was released in August of 1967. I went to see it in August of 1967 when I was uh, just about to start graduate school in Boulder. Huge success, both both, critically and financially. And um, it holds up well after 52 years. And you watched it with some of the family who had not seen the movie before. So it'll be interesting to hear how they reacted. And we do want to, before we forget, we also want to thank our newest uh, Patreon subscriber.
1: We want to say thank you so much to Bethany Barnson. She reached out and said that she listens to the show with a cup with, uh, with three of her young children. And that's great. We love that you are able to do that. And one of the goals that we had uh, with the show was to keep it so that anybody could listen to it. You know it was uh, anybody in the family could listen to it because I, I do enjoy listening to podcasts with my kids as well. And uh, not all podcasts are child friendly, that's for sure. So thank you so much, Bethany for subscribing on Patreon. And we really do appreciate it.
0: So In the Heat of the Night uh, won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, It was uh, awarded that in early 1968. And listen to the competition that it had. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, and Catherine Hepburn. The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. Bonnie and Clyde with Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. And Dr. Doolittle. Now, those are all classic movies. I would have been happy had any of them won.
1: Oh, it's interesting that Sidney Portier was in two of those movies as oh, well. Oh, he was,
0: yeah, he was really, really on top of the the game at that point.
1: We talked a little bit about Dr. Doolittle uh, in one of our earlier episodes. Um, so that's interesting that that was one of the ones as well.
0: And then just one other um Award here to talk about for a second. Rod Steiger won the Best Actor Award. And uh, he was up against Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke, Spencer Tracy in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate, and Warren Beatty in Bonnie and Clyde. So it was a very competitive field and a very competitive year for awards. And this this movie, I think, won a total of five academy awards
1: what do you think about rod steiger winning the best actor and not Sidney poitier does that what I, uh, i'm surprised i i thought i thought they were equally as good well, i think
0: they both were excellent i think mr poitier having also been uh, in guess who's coming to dinner uh, although he wasn't nominated for that one i, I wonder if that had some effect on the voting, although I, I can't fault Rod Steiger's performance in this. He was uh, he was a character that through the course of the movie uh, and the arc of that movie, he he changed uh, uh, in some subtle and not-so-subtle ways. So I, I'm okay with that, although that competition, any one of those people would have been a wonderful winner.
1: True, uh, true. Th- I, I, do, I do really love his character in this movie and just some of his little quirks. Like I, I read that the director... Um, oh,
0: Norman Jewison.
1: Yeah, sorry. The director, Norman Jewison, suggested that he be chewing gum um, and Rod Steiger didn't like that idea at first, but then once he kind of got into it, he totally loved it and went through like 250 packs of gum during the filming of the movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> resulting, in, <laughs> resulting in a lot of dental work from the sugar. Uh, I, I didn't know that. You know, Norman, Norman Jewison is, is still uh, alive and well at 93, and he did so many wonderful movies over so many decades, it's hard to keep up with them all. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof, which we haven't reviewed but we will in the future uh, a favorite of nancy's and mine moonstruck with Cher. yeah
1: it's that's a, a great really movie really
0: wonderful movie he did about 20 films um and and i can't think of one of them that wasn't top top drawer really an excellent uh excellent excellent director in the heat of the night man oh, i tell you i keep.
1: I, yeah well i th- i was i was uh I'd never seen this movie before and I was also aware that there was a TV series spinoff of it in the late 80s and early 90s and I'm pretty sure I saw some episodes of that. Um, But I was amazed at how powerful this movie was today and I think it totally has just as much power today as it would have back in the 60s and I read that they there was a some creative accounting that went on when the production company was pitching this because they were thinking that they weren't going to be able to distribute it in the, in the South. And so that was a pretty big chunk of market that they weren't going to be able to recover m- money from. And I, I then also read that actually when it was screened in theaters in the South, that there weren't any issues. So it was maybe, maybe not as widely distributed as it could have been, but that where it was distributed, it didn't seem to cause any issues. But this was a really volatile time.
0: I think that's a very uh, early, early, early indication of how maybe mores were changing a bit. But at that time, uh, in the 60s, both in Mississippi and Alabama, it was still very much a segregated, uh, not only those states, but other places as well. But I can remember the... uh, the governor of Mississippi from 1960 to 1964, Ross Barnett, was—he uh, was avid that he would there would never be any integration in Mississippi, um, and that carried him to a victory. And then in Alabama, George Wallace was governor there, not consecutively, but for a total of 16 years, and he was a very, again, a very strong segregationist. So. I think it's a little surprising that it, that it fared well in the South, but also it's, a, it's like a maybe a faint light at the end of the tunnel of getting a more open society and a more diverse uh, society. There are so many themes in this movie, Matt. I, I, I wrote down the ones that come to mind. Um, if I could take just a second, maybe that'll set the background for what we want to talk about. First, first of all, it's a, it's a murder mystery. At its, at its uh, simplest, it's a procedural murder mystery. Then it's a uh, movie about black-white relations in a segregated environment and the culture that occurred in that area. It's about bigotry. It's about underage uh, rape. It's about uh, the, the issue of abortion, it's the white power structure, the resistance to change, some of the incompetence in, the, in his uh, staff and other places. Uh, I mean, there's a lot going on. I remember a line that Lee Grant's character said in the first third of the movie. She's just had it with the whole thing. She's, she, she and her husband were there from, I believe, Chicago. She says to Rod Stagger and the mayor that the building, What's all this Ms. koba has been telling me about a, a cover-up arrest? No, ma'am, we ain't had no cover-up. In fact, we just dropped the charges for insufficient evidence.
1: (sighs) Miss Coburn, I told you he was nobody's man.
0: I came by to make it as clear as I possibly can. But I do not want that Negro officer taken off this case. Negro officer? Yeah, well, he, uh... He comes from up north, you see, and he was, uh, kind of... ...passing through. I don't
1: care what he is. If it wasn't for him, your impartial chief of police would still have the wrong man behind bars. I want that officer given a free hand. Otherwise, I will pack up my
0: husband's engineers and leave you yourselves well, Miss Colbert now don't you worry about a thing
1: believe me we're going to take care of everything
0: beside herself they were, they were just all bumbling all over the place so those are the themes I picked up on
1: one other theme that I mean those are wow we're going to need to talk for three hours if we cover all those but um one other theme that kind of came out in that scene that you just mentioned was this idea that um you can you can get so wrapped up in your preconceptions that you miss what's really going on and you know it it was kind of set up to be like the endicott um larry gates character endicott was going to I mean it was just sort of assumed that he was behind the murder because of this kind of struggle between the folks coming in from out of town to build this factory and the the established cotton industry there but it turns out to to be something totally totally different and and in some ways much more um I don't know, like, I, I don't want to say mundane or pedestrian because it's still kind of terrible what happened, but it wasn't like this big, highfalutin sort of conspiracy between these two corporations, you know? It was just something that, just an everyday kind of terrible thing that happened.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I was alluding to when I said it was sort of a straight-ahead murder. It, it didn't get into some of the things that you thought might happen. And while we're talking about Mr. Endicott and his character... I would like to give credit to Larry Gates for playing that part so effectively because he had a long, long career in film and and, and he was as far away from that character in his real life as he could have been. But he was so believable in that. that. It was just, I just wanted to shake him. I was so upset by his behavior.
1: Well, yeah, I think, we only really see him in that one greenhouse scene, right? I think there's I think...
0: a quick scene of him when the uh, city council is meeting at the implement implement dealers. Early on, they're talking about what what are they going to do, and I think he's there, but he, he doesn't have anything or very much to say.
1: I was I was absolutely riveted at the edge of my seat in that whole scene at the in the greenhouse. I was that was. Wow! Yeah, no, no wonder it was nominated for yeah, Best Picture. Wasn't it
0: wasn't wasn't it something when uh, 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 Mister Tibbs finds that particular kind of uh, plant food, and he it's the same one he talked to the sheriff or the the police chief about earlier, and he and he he says it, and Stagger looks at him like he like a light bulb went on in his head. What he was doing? It was yeah,
1: like, it's like well and. I, <laughs> Mr. Tibbs, Virgil was like three steps ahead of those two guys. You know, like he—I think he already knew that—that's what he was going to find. And
0: boy, did he want to get even with uh, Endicott!
1: Oh, you better damn well clear out, and I mean fast. What about that big speech you gave me this morning? I didn't know you were going to slap any white man, least of all Endicott. All right, give me another day, two days. I'm close. I can pull that fat cat down. I can bring him right off this hill.
0: Oh boy. Man,
1: you're just like the rest of us. Well, and, and that's what I was alluding yeah. to earlier is that he had it out for Endicott, and he even says later in the movie that I had it all wrong. I was I was blinded by my desire to take this guy down. And yeah, I thought the whole mystery of what happened to the person that was murdered at the beginning of the movie, uh Mr. Colbert was so fascinating and it was you know in the in the realm of procedural dramas it was at the it was at the top of the list of really good procedural drama movies that i've seen
0: very much so um kind of moving back to the to the uh sort of the course of the film i i I want to also give uh, a mention to the uh, photography the cinematography and how beautifully it was filmed when it opens up and they show that kinda of early morning little town with the train signals going. That was a beautiful way to set the stage for that community and what it what it looked like. It was really well done. And
1: Yeah, the cinematography was awesome. It was so so well done. And uh, I just I, I thought about that in one particular scene where the police are chasing who they think is the murder through the forest through the woods and then out onto that bridge and you know when you think about cinematography at least when I do I I think it has to it, it serves the purpose of supporting the story right and the drama that's happening in the story and that's a perfect example like I think in a film school you could show that sequence and say this is really how cinematography supports the story because it shows kind of like a pulled-back view, and then you go into the woods, but it's still kind of like on a tripod, the camera is, but like a tracking shot. And then it's a handheld shot, and you're fall- it's like you're, you're with the guy running through the woods, and it sort of builds up this pacing and this tension. And then as he's kind of coming out of the woods, it pulls back again, and it's another tracking shot. And then when he's going across the bridge, it's pulled way, way back, and you just see this little dot running across this giant bridge, and and it just gives you this feeling like there's no way in, in heck that he's gonna be able to get across that bridge before he gets caught. And then and then you then you cut to a scene of Rod Steiger's character just sitting in his sitting casually in his police car, chewing his gum, just kind of waiting for him to get on the bridge. And I <laughs> laughed and I said. The only thing that would make that scene better is if he had like a cup of coffee that he was drinking, because he's just kind of out hanging out, waiting for this guy, waiting for the
0: thing to <laughs> unfold. Well, it's it's a credit to an A plus uh, cinematographer Haskell we- Wexler. I mean, the, the the production crew on this film was was top quality all the way through. It just and it shows in the scenes. Um, the, the the one other character that w- what I w- wanted to talk about one of the actors Lee Grant, who played uh, the wife of the murdered man Mr. Uh, Colbert, had a had a long career, but sadly from 1952 until 1964 she was blacklisted, and I won't go into all the background of that, but it wasn't her particular approach but uh, she had made a eulogy to defend someone and then she would not testify before the house on american activities committee about her husband's whatever he was alleged to have done and because of that she appeared in what at the time was a uh, rabid anti-communist paper called red channels and then she was she was basically out of film for kind of the prime part of her career She's still alive she's still she's in her nineties and living in uh New England somewhere, but she was excellent in the film in a in a fairly small part but very well played especially when she was in that hotel room and you could tell she was just in utter shock she just she didn't know what to do she didn't know what had happened she couldn't understand it and she didn't want to be well the didn't.
1: the the that scene when she finds out uh where mr tibbs tells her that her husband is dead was another one of these like really powerful edgier seat kind of scenes. And the way that they interacted with each other was so realistic to me. And the fact that she pulled away from him, but not because he was a black man, but just because I think she was in shock and she, she did let him kind of help her find a place to sit. And then she asked if she could just be alone for a few minutes, because I think she just needed to, kind of process what she just heard
0: how was she taking chief had to leave before she got here she don't even know it yet hey you can't go in there boy mrs. Colbert where's my husband What's happened to him? Why won't anybody here tell me what's happened to him?
1: Why won't anybody here tell me what's happened to him? I have a right to know if he's hurt, if he's been in an accident. I want to know if my husband is all right. Your husband is dead, Mrs. Cooper. I just love that scene. It was she was so amazing in that in that. Just really, really great.
0: Yeah, she, in the very first movie that she ever did. I believe it was 1951 in a movie called The Detective with Kurt Douglas. She had a supporting role. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in that first film role that she ever did. That's how strong uh, her acting, uh, her talent was.
1: It kind of gives you. A, I mean, I'm glad you brought up this. Uh, what happened with her? Kind of like you said, during the prime of her career, when she could have been making more movies like this, you know. And I, I think it just. It's a shame that so many. Talented people were blacklisted, and so many talented people did have their careers cut short. And for what, you know, it's just it's it it. This movie is really relevant today in a lot of ways, oh, even even when totally. you think about what the what was really going on at the time with these people. Totally in their lives. relevant yeah. with
0: the, with current events. Um, and and a significant departure in my view from the films. Say in the nineteen thirties and forties in terms of their treatment of of black uh, actors, black characters. This this is really, uh, and, and it was in the same year, in the same uh, group as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So you, you see this shift, at least for me, a shift in, in how uh, entertainment is, is beginning to uh, have a whole different view as they make films and television shows Sometime if you want to watch a fun movie that Lee Grant is in, <laughs> I don't think we'd want to review it, but we might. Uh, it's called Shampoo from 1975 with Warren, Warren Bailey. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about that one, but yeah. uh, I, oh, yeah, I it have, might yeah. not fall within our definition of our uh, keeping it classy and whatnot. But uh, anyway.
1: I'm just, I'm just realizing how many movies of Sidney Portier we've reviewed. Oh, my um, gosh.
0: No Way Out?
1: The Defiant Ones,
0: Lilies of the Field.
1: I'd love to watch. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? That's such a good movie.
0: Well, we we've got all the time in the world to do that. Um, and he plays different characters in each one. Totally Blackboard different...
1: Jungle. Didn't we do Blackboard Jungle uh, too?
0: If we didn't, we should. We should. We've done enough episodes now. I can't keep track on all of them.
1: I don't think we. I don't think we've done that one. But I think we. Sh- we definitely should.
0: He. Uh, he had quite a career. He was for many years the. Uh, Ambassador to Japan for the Bahamas.
1: And he's an actual knight. He's been knighted.
0: I know. There's so many films he's done, like uh, one that is overlooked sometimes, the Cry the Beloved Country from 1951 about apartheid in South Africa. But anyway, uh, the film, In the Heat of the Night, should we kind of wander through it, saunter through it from the, the plot standpoint?
1: There's so much to talk about in this movie.
0: The other theme that is is really incidental to the film is, but it's at the very, very end of passenger train service in the U.S. I defy anybody to make that connection, where uh, Mr. Tibbs was coming from one place, waiting in Sparta, Mississippi, to catch a train to Memphis. Those days ended in the late '60s, so it, it was it, it was also a kind of the. End of an era when it came to that passenger service. And can you think of a more uh, dangerous place to wait for a, a train in that that little town?
1: That's a that's a terrible stopover for him. I mean, yeah. So the movie starts off with the train pulling into Sparta, Mississippi. It was actually filmed in Sparta, Illinois, because Sidney Poitier would not go into Mississippi. He'd had a couple really i'd say near-death experiences there at the hands of racists so he gets off the train and is just kind of waiting for the next train and then we cut to a scene where there's this guy uh, this police officer driving through town late at night and he creepily slows down turns his lights lights off and pulls up next to this house where he can see there's this woman inside in her kitchen totally naked uh drinking like a coke or something And she knows that he's out there. He knows that she knows. Uh, It's just super creepy.
0: It's very creepy. And and then we find out later that she's 16 years old.
1: Which just, yeah, when you find that out, it's even even worse. And then he continues on his kind of patrol and finds a dead man in an alleyway, kind of right around dawn, I would say. I think it was like 5 o'clock in the morning or something. And then... He is directed by the sheriff, played by... Well, he's not sheriff, he's police chief, I guess, is the right term there. Yeah, he's
0: the, he's the chief of police, yeah. yeah.
1: Gillespie is his character's name, played by Rod Steiger, to, to go out and, and canvas town and see if he can find anybody suspicious. And so, of course, of course, uh, Virgil Tibbs gets caught up in that. And, and what what's so classic about that for me is that the, the, the officer doesn't even ask any questions at all about why he's there, what he's doing, who he is. Doesn't even look for his ID. He just basically arrests him and put him, puts him in the back of the car and goes to the police station. And that, that was played by Sam Wood. I think it's Warren Oates as his character.
0: Yeah, Warren Oates did a, 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 did a terrific job playing that character, yeah.
1: Oh, right, it's Warren Oates playing yes. Sam Wood. Sorry, I had that backwards.
0: Yeah, the arrest would, uh, would be... Uh... At, at, thrown out within seven seconds just by the way he did it
1: well and, and and we find out within about seven minutes that you know virgil is a police officer from pennsylvania and gillespie the police chief just loses it what yes you question this man before you brought him in no sir
0: Do you mind taking a look at that?
1: Yeah! Oh, yeah!
0: All right, I'll check on this wise city boy from
1: Philadelphia. You take him outside and hold him. Yes, sir. May I suggest that you call my chief rather than send a wire or anything? I mean, it would be quicker, and I'll pay for the call. Look
0: okay. you hear you hear him say he'd pay for the call? How much do they pay you to do their police work?
1: $162.39 per week. $162.39 a week. Well, boy, you
0: take him outside, Wood, but treat him easy, because a man that makes $162.39 a week, man, we do not want to ruffle him.
1: Man, he 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 really had a temper if he, oh. if he just let it get the better of him. And yet, at the same
0: time, he he had a staff of uh, deputies that were less than t- on top of their game.
1: Yeah, I think they were. It was it was a super small town in, in rural Mississippi, and I, I think this is probably the most exciting uh, thing that's happened there in probably a couple decades. I would say. You know, the
0: thing that comes to mind with with the talk about the the early arrest and. The scenes in the, uh, the police department early on is, is were a couple of those uh, police staff people a little too cartoonish and not as fully developed dimensionally like the the one who had a brother that was supposed to fix the gate or the air conditioner. I I I don't know. I mean I don't know what it would have been like in that in that time frame, but. They were so, um, well, I don't know what the word is, relaxed about doing anything.
1: I, I think they were a bit stereotyped characters of sort of the bumbling police, uh, especially like bumbling police in the South. And I, I do feel like that's a bit of a unfortunate miss in terms of the writing. I think they could have. Like, I think Sam Wood actually was pretty believable. I th-
0: yeah, his his character, yeah. It was the it was the other staff members that I found hard to believe.
1: Peter Peter Whitney played Courtney and he was he had the amazing eyebrows.
0: <laughs> was he the one <laughs> whose brother never fixed the gate? Yeah.
1: Yeah, he was a bit cartoony. And then I, there was a couple other people that had smaller parts that were a bit cartoony, but I thought in terms of the main characters, uh, Warren Oates, I thought, did a good job because my take on him was that he was just a, a go-getter. Like He really wanted to impress the chief, and but he wasn't too smart in terms of like procedure and what was okay to do and what was not okay to do. It was just sort of uh, flying by the seat of his pants uh, most of the time.
0: And, and through the course of the film, a little bit later on, we find out that the former police uh, chief was uh, quite an a unusual character as well and probably didn't demand much from his staff in, in terms of performance and competence.
1: Yeah, so in that way, I think those characters do fit because they were probably hired by the former police chief, and I don't think he had real high standards in terms of <laughs> who he would be hiring. And so, yeah, that makes kind of sense to me.
0: When I saw this film in 1967, these minor characters really didn't play much on, on my mind as I watched it because I was so engrossed with the interaction between Poitier, Stagger, uh, Grant, the mayor, Endicott, it, uh, these others sort of... I don't remember too much about my reaction to them.
1: Our introduction to the characters was really, really good. Um, we we immediately know that Sam Wood is is probably driven more by emotion than logic you know he, he he doesn't stop to think about what he's doing he just does some yeah stuff, which kind of comes out later as well and then uh virgil is very calm and cool and collected he doesn't say anything he doesn't like escalate with the situation he's just very sort of like patient and we get that really quickly and then gillespie is sort of blustering but also you get the idea that he's pretty smart you know and he's he's a thoughtful person at the same time uh, and
0: i think he goes through a change uh at the, the character goes through a change throughout the course of the film i mentioned that earlier um but you know i was uh, the one thing that about gillespie is he was going to arrest anybody that seemed to be halfway suspicious he was
1: yeah because <laughs> he does arrest another person later and, even arrests tips tips uh, but, Tib, he arrests Tibbs, yeah, but Tibbs was pretty quick to point out that the pr- second person they, they arrest uh, after Tibbs uh, couldn't have been the killer because he's he's left-handed and the, the killer was right-handed. And, you know, that's come some of that procedural drama that comes into play. Yeah,
0: that was the, fir- that was the first uh, uh, person. Oh, that was the first person. The second, that's second right. person was Tibbs, and then the third arrest was uh, Wood. Warren Oates character right
1: right right okay so they didn't they did well they 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 kind of they kind of arrested Tibbs from the train station oh that's
0: true yeah he was he was in and out yeah that's true <laughs> so the, the 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 action is unfolding in this small town in the early morning
1: Mr. Tibbs uh, uh, commander says that well you should stay there and help them you're you're the best homicide detective we've got <laughs>
0: yeah and that went over well with him didn't it? it was like wow I just want to get out of here
1: yeah he wanted to get out of there, and Gillespie didn't want him there either. He's like, uh, yeah, you can just get back on your train and go take <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> a couple of false starts in that area as well um, I found the scene where actually then Mr Tibbs does acquiesce to help uh but but he really doesn't want to he goes to the uh to the place where the body is being kept by the uh, the mortuary or the, wherever it is, and boy, those two guys in in there were Really couldn't understand why this guy was why Mr. Tibbs was there. It was like, and Mr. Mr. Tibbs, he did this subtle thing, like, kind of under his breath, just thinking, "Boy, these people, <laughs> these people are not, not anybody I want to be around for very
1: long." And yeah. then he examines well, the they body. Hadn't even done, they hadn't even done... Oh, go ahead. Well, those two guys hadn't even really done an examination no, of the body. No, because... I mean, in, in any kind of real way.
0: We see... We Within
1: see. two minutes, he'd already discovered more about the murder than they had in hours and hours.
0: And then he wanted this whole list of things, the ingredients that would permit him to do the <laughs> investigation. And the whole time he's doing this, you know, I'm thinking, man, wear some gloves. <laughs> yeah, you
1: know. I know, I know. <laughs> That's Gross. definitely
0: changed today, wow! But he comes up with a package of evidence, and he's not giving that up. Yeah, you because know, Gillespie right. wants he, it.
1: He, he wants to send it off to. He wants to send this evidence off to the FBI, and Gillespie wants to take it, and he's not going to give it up. So he gets thrown in a cell again. Mister Tibbs does because he he's obstructing justice or something like that, and. And then, but Mr. Tibbs kind of plays it off as that the sh- the police chief threw him in there on purpose so that he could talk to this other suspect. Yeah, he did a masterful and... job
0: of 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 com- becoming some kind of a trusted person to the first arrestee. We should have arrestee one, two, and three, uh, and, and that guy, uh, the left-handed guy. Sorta of opens up a little bit because he, he, what is he going to do? Because I think Tib says I'm your only
1: hope. So yeah, wake up. Yeah, well, and he and yeah, so he gets a couple leads from from this guy. And I'm trying to find one th- of them was to this guy. One of them was to a woman. Oh, well, I was ahead. going to say this guy that's the first that's in the cell. Who? Which
0: which guy is that? I've lost track. Is that Packy? No, I think it's Packy. I want to
1: say that it is. I think it's Packy, played by Matt Clark. Yeah, yeah. I think
0: so. I'm looking at my notes. But, here. There's so many characters here.
1: But we, we this is where this is where sort of the complexity of the story starts to unfold because he he in, in intimates that there's something else going on here, and it it might involve Dolores, and it might involve Sam, Sam Wood. And that he should go talk to this woman in town who does abortions, kind of, you know, on the on the down low, like nobody's really yeah. supposed to know about this. And that character, that-, that woman was played by. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to say that the cellmate was was not Packet was, uh, Orbis Oberst, played by Scott Wilson. He's the left handed guy. Ah,
1: okay. Okay.
0: Keeping my uh, character. Glad straight. Glad you figure that out? And and then a little later um, in the film, Mr. Tibbs goes to visit the uh, the woman,
1: Mama oh, Kaliba. Yeah, by B. Played by B. Richards. Um. Oh, but before that happens, um, Mr. Tibbs and uh, the sh- the police chief are kind of hanging out at at Gillespie's house and and i thought that whole scene in the living room of Gillespie's house was fascinating because it just revealed so much about his character and how he was so alone there and yeah kind of like yeah and then and then it was and then it was interesting because uh Mr. Tibbs Vir- Virgil sort of made a comment that was like i guess taken as he was feeling sorry for Gillespie and Gillespie just lost it and says don't I don't need your pity and I thought that was a powerful another powerful scene and a lot of those lines were kind of ad libbed between the two of them I was reading
0: I, I believe that that could act, that easily happen because they're they're on set then they're they're relaxing those chairs and they, they were, they're so both so professional and experienced that they could do that and then we need to backtrack a little further because we still haven't spoken about uh, an earlier scene where the police chief and mr tibbs go to visit endicott oh right Remember, yeah. uh, when they're still thinking that there's some connection there and they go to endicott's house and the scene going through that cotton field the the
1: uh gosh that could have been like from 150 years ago except oh. for those those tractors
0: and, and here's Tibbs in the in the police department car, and and uh, the workers looking at him like as suspicious of him as they are of Endicott. Uh, but they could. I think
1: Gillespie said something. Said something to him like, um, to to kind of say like, you're one of the lucky ones or something. Yes. And it, it kind of kind of intimating that. You know, you 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 got out of this situation, or or something. That's kind of how I took it, anyway.
0: They pull up in front of that mansion that Endicott has. Man, oh man, that was like right out of Gone with the Wind. The look of that place. Oh,
1: that that was definitely like a plantation house, right from yeah. from the days when there was slavery there. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, and and they're there because uh, Virgil, Mister Tibbs. Uh, has an idea that, well, two things. One, he, he thinks that there's a lead there because he thinks that uh, Mr. Colbert had been to visit Endicott and he thinks that Endicott might have been the one that killed him. And he's bound and determined to find evidence to incriminate Endicott because he he wants yeah. to bring this, this essentially like a plantation owner, he wants to bring him down.
0: We're, we're bouncing around a little bit, but another thing that uh, Tibbs did, was he thoroughly uh, examined the uh, Lincoln convertible that Colbert was driving, and he found all kinds of things that the police, or or the forensic people, had not even looked at. There was blood on the there was blood on the front seat on the passenger side, and he found this plant food or uh, I think that's what it was on the carpet, and that's when he got the idea that he needed to go to Endicott because he knew it went went together with uh, Kind of flowers that he was thinking that Endicott grew. What struck me about the scenes in the greenhouse, there are actually two two Endicotts. The first Endicott is the gracious, uh, powerful, uh, many decades uh, owner of the plantation and forebearers owners of the plantation, and treating. Tibbs and Gillespie, like you know, I don't know, like they were. He had to deal with them, and he did it in a kind of a differential way. Differential way. With the with the ask, you know, do you want something to drink, and all that. And then it changes when he realizes that they're there to question him. His demeanor is oh, completely different. Instant. Yeah, just like boom, he's he's in he's into his other self and he's not going to have anything to do with that and then we get that famous confrontation
1: yeah where where Endicott slaps uh Mr. Tibbs and Mr. Tibbs slaps him right back and that's just as shocking today as it was I'm sure in the theater at the time and it's it's the slap itself is not... It's the context within which the slap hap- occurs that I think is yeah. quite shocking.
0: And and, and I, I because remember... Because
1: he even says that... He even says that if the former sheriff would have taken Tibbs out back and shot him if, if he'd done that. Uh, and was, I believe it.
0: There was a time when I could have had you shot, I think is the line. I remember being in the theater in 1967 when that occurred and everybody in the theater was full jumped I mean it was just boom it was so unexpected and we all felt like Stagger's character like why did I just see what I saw and then there's actually another Endicott when the two of them leave when Tibbs and and Gillespie leave Endicott turns to the camera And breaks down because I think he realizes it's going to be a much different time now, and his power and control is going to be somewhat weakened. And uh, I think they close out that scene with him crying.
1: That was a that was an incredible performance by him. Oh, Mr. Um, Gates! that, That yeah, Larry Gates. Yeah, yeah. Because it shows like this this total wide range of emotions and the fact that they ended it with him crying. I, I read that a little bit differently. I kind of took that as he had just experienced something that he thought he would never ever experience in his life. And I think it just completely turned his world upside down and his ego was kind of crushed at that point. Like, I guess it is similar to what you're saying, but I think it was a much more personal sort of a front to his worldview than a realization that he didn't have power anymore. I think it was more like, I don't think he ever, ever thought that a black man would slap him like that. Like it just would, it's just so far outside of his realm of what he could have ever imagined. And that was so incredibly powerful, that whole scene, because of that.
0: I think it's one of the things that, Always, always draws me to really well done films, is how this film in those few minutes send a message of what happens to someone that changes their whole life. Yeah, it, it, things are going to be different in going forward. Yeah. yeah,
1: totally. No, I think now that I'm saying it, I think we, we're saying the same thing. When
0: when Tibbs and Gillespie are standing outside the police uh, chief's car outside the mansion, and Tibbs. Just lets it all out. He says, I, I want to get that guy. I am going to do everything to get that guy. And, and Stagger's character says, you're just like us. <laughs> he, he, he was he was bell bent. He knew that guy was going down. That was quite a scene also. There are so many good scenes in this film.
1: I, I think it's one of these movies where I I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to think of too many scenes that could just be Cut out without diminishing the impact of the film I, I I think there's a few kind of goofy scenes with the with the deputies that maybe could be taken out um, kind of joking around with the one guy about his brother I don't know that that added a lot to it but, yeah or when the um, three
0: deputies and the two patrol officers came back in and they were they were joking back and forth i I, I think the director wanted to set a certain style to that office and 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 i guess that's what he was after there uh and we do have a a very dangerous scene for mr tibbs when those four uh local men chase him to this abandoned railroad yard and it's only by uh a couple of minutes that he's saved by the police chief who shows up uh and and i think that's a scene where we see Gillespie's character beginning to change even more, because he 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 yeah. bats that one guy around and he scares him off, and shoos him away.
1: I also felt like that was a moment where I almost felt like Gillespie. It was a tight it was a tight rope for him. Like I I wasn't even sure if he was going to be able to get out of there himself because yeah. I, at that point you kind of got the sense that he was a bit of an outsider in the town as well and. Those four guys could have, if they wanted to, they could have killed both of them. Killed them both, yeah. And yeah, but he was able, just through the sheer force of his will, to back him off. Well, and he had, he had a gun too. He had but a gun. That, I mean... <laughs> the thing that it also points <laughs> that out might have helped. It, it,
0: what it points out for me also is that both the characters of Tibbs and Gillespie, we know very little about what ha- what's their background, what's their backstory. I don't think we find out one thing about Mr. Tibbs other than he was a, a detective in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Police Department. We don't know if he's married. He has. I guess he he'd visit his mother somewhere, and that's how he was on the train. But very little is known about him. Well, that's and, what
1: he that's what he says. That's, yeah, that's what he says. But we don't know. We don't know for sure. And
0: Gillespie yeah. only opens up when he and Tibbs are in his living room. So they're both kind of mysterious characters i know we find out more about mr tibbs in his subsequent films but that doesn't really fit what we're seeing today so that scene is is yeah, powerful I, I, uh, and didn't you love that old plymouth that they were using to chase him with those fins that thing looked like a take off oh my gosh <laughs> i remember those yeah that thing was huge <laughs> probably eight miles to the gallon there was a
1: funny scene there was a funny <laughs> scene when mr tibbs gets dropped off by Gillespie to uh, this mechanic that lives outside of town. Oh and, uh, yes, this is a another black black family that lives outside of town, and uh, the mechanic. I don't know if I'll be able to find his that actor's name. Um,
0: but he did say that if he.
1: Oh, I did. Khalil. 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 Bezalel. Bezalel. Khalil. Bezalel. Yeah, there it is. Lays... Jess. Yeah, and and he asks uh, Mr. Tibbs, well, where are you going to be staying? And, and he goes, well, I guess I'll get a place in the motel <laughs> yeah, in town. Right. And he just starts laughing. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, that's not going to happen. Good luck with that. And yeah. he just says to his wife, we've got a guest. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... My take on about... that was that there was, nobody, there was nobody in town that was going to rent him a room, that he, he better just stay here.
0: That was another theme going on, the segregation at the time in public accommodations. Um. I guess that um uh, I I don't want to get into the ending of the movie too much cuz it's such uh, it's such a well-crafted third act but it reinfo- the ending for me reinforced the fact that it was a uh, a murder mystery by the characters that were involved in that. I know Mr. Tibbs is there but the other people it, it it's 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 it doesn't fit what I thought was going to happen when I watched the movie for the first time. It was just really different. No, really, without different.
1: without saying exactly what happens, I I will just say that I love that he is able to resolve the situation using his brains and oh, yes, he his 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 quick, his quick thinking. And I mean, there's there's a moment where you're like, oh, this is it, like he's gonna get killed here. There's no way he's gonna get out of this, and and he does. And that was really cool. And I love the ending scene where uh, he and Gillespie are at the train station and they have kind of a moment where they're equals, you know, like, and, and they're kind of almost like friend, friends with each other at that point, too.
0: Yeah. What was the parting line that Gillespie said to Tibbs as he got on the train? Take care of your, watch out, take care of yourself or watch out. Mm. And he's carrying um, a suitcase. I not want to we only There's he's carrying a suitcase too. That's a symbol of a of a change for the white. Oh totally. Yeah, Gillespie's, chief to be carrying. Gillespie's
1: carrying, yeah. Um I did wanna I did wanna mention that I thought that um B Richards did a really great job as that woman who lived in town and was gonna help the other woman have an abortion. I thought that was an interesting scene.
0: Very much so.
1: Because she was saying that she, she didn't believe that Mr. Tibbs would arrest her. You wouldn't do that to me, she says. And I think it puts him in an interesting position of, well, would he do that? You know, like what? where do his loyalties lie? You know?
0: You're know, you going crazy out of your mind.
1: Now listen, hear me good, Mama. Please, don't make me have to send you to jail. Not you care. There's white time in jail and there's colored time in jail. The worst kind of time you can do is colored time.
0: Child, you promise, give me understanding, I got used to better, you won't take it away. I won't take it away. Well, I don't know his name, but she's coming here tonight get herself straight I, I, I kept thinking where have I seen her she was she was an actress that was in so many films and television her face is well known and I was thinking who is that she did a nice job on that I did want to mention Warren Oates because he uh, during his lifetime really loved Montana and <laughs> he he and his he and his Band of Friends, including Peter Fonda, who's also now gone, spent a lot of time in the Paradise Valley and at Chico Hot Springs, which is my one of my favorite spots in the world, for getting away from things. He was in a couple of films that that I really enjoy: Stripes. Remember Stripes with? Uh, oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Nineteen eighty-one with
0: Bill Murray, and then The Wild Bunch. He was a, one of the Wild Bunch crew from the film the 1969 film uh really excellent actor but he died at the age of 53 mainly through kind of lifestyle issues anyway what a movie What a well movie. I, I,
1: I i don't want to go too much into this particular character other than to say uh that um james patterson's mr purdy was a real creep <laughs> oh
0: oh And that restaurant
1: wasn't he the guy that worked at the at the restaurant and he was like the place was like a roach infested. Oh, it was gross. As far
0: as I could tell, the uh, uh, patrol guy Woods was the only customer that ever went in that place. That was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Even I have not eaten in a place that looked like that, and I've had Uh. some wild experiences in parts of the country with sort of borderline restaurants. Nothing like that, though. Yeah, he was really creepy. Very creepy. He
1: he did a good job playing a real creepy guy. Really creepy guy. So Um, Yeah, so I guess we should probably wrap this up. This is a really dense movie, and I'm not sure that we totally did it justice, but I, I think we covered some really good themes and some highlights from the movie.
0: I would just add that anyone who has not seen this film would really, really enjoy watching it, I'm sure. It's just so timeless and and as important today as it was 52 years ago. So my rating for it is a 10.
1: That's one of these easy ones for a 10 for me as well. Yeah. Definitely.
0: And we shouldn't shouldn't end without mentioning the music. The music is... Oh, yeah, the music. Yeah, I did want to mention that too. It's so well done. Quincy Jones, in the heat of the night, just the music fits the mood perfectly. So, a tip of the hat to Quincy Jones, and another tip of the hat to the screenplay by Sterling Silverfond, who did a lot of writing for film. Excellent. So, we both gave we both gave it a ten, right?
1: Both gave it a ten. Yep. So that's our review of In the Heat of the Night. And coming to you from North Bend, it's Matt Johnson.
0: And here in Los Angeles, Bob Johnson, wishing you all happy movie-watching and happy holidays. Well, got your ticket? Here you are. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Virgil, you take care, you
1: hear?